And I'm about ready to bring it to a close. And as I think about that, I think that there are still many things that could be said. Many scriptures that we can read as we're in the Word. There's always going to be something that will challenge us. And maybe if it's not challenging us, maybe we've come com- become complacent about it. Maybe we've missed its impact and we've forgotten. So we need to get back into it. Today's lesson will be one that, well, we've probably heard in whole or in part many times throughout our lives in Christ. So it may seem routine. You'll say, what's there to wrestle with? Well, I think it's something that complacency causes us to forget. And we need to revisit it. And I think it will become clear as we do. Because it is pretty basic. It is pretty fundamental. Something that we do take for granted, I think. And yet, on one hand of it, as we get to the close of the lesson, it will deal with the struggles that we have in accepting what God has offered to us. Yes, what He has even given to us. So let's begin. President Calvin Coolidge, many years ago, alleged that one time he went to worship services. His wife was unable to attend that morning. And when he gets back, she asks him, well, what did the preacher talk about? What was his lesson about? And he replied, simply sin. Well, his wife wanted to know more about it. She wanted details. What was the content? To which President Coolidge replied, Well, I think he was against it. Sometimes I wonder with what comes out of some pulpits that I hear today, if they are against what God has spoken against. Some years ago, Dr. Carl Menninger, a noted psychiatrist in Topeka, Kansas, founded the Menninger Institution, noted that he thought that 75% of the patients there could probably go home tomorrow if he could persuade them, if he could convince them that their sins were forgiven. That says a lot. Because what does sin do to us? Besides alienating us from God, I think it puts a burden on us that is just difficult to bear. Because we know we've done something wrong and we don't think there's any hope. And if you don't think there's any hope, you may struggle with, how do I get out of this burden? How do I get out from underneath it? Well, let's note as we begin a few things, a few facts that we take for granted. But let's revisit it so the impact will be there, and that is, what is sin? We can define it. Augustine wrote about sin, saying, Sin is believing the lie that you are self-created, self-dependent, and self-sustained. That there is no one above you, if you will. I mean, if if you're self-created, if you are dependent only upon yourself and your abilities, your skills, your intellect, then you're taking care of yourself. 
probably is a pretty true statement that Augustine made. One is observed in regards to sin, several points, or man calls it an accident, God would rather call it an abomination. Man might call it a blunder, God will call it blindness. For man it is a defect, for God it might be a disease. Man just says, well it just happened, it's chance. And God says, no, you made a choice. Man calls it error, and God calls it enmity. Man calls it an infirmity, but God calls it iniquity. Man calls it liberty. God says it's lawlessness. Man calls it insignificant, a trifle. God calls it a tragedy. God calls it a weakness. Our man calls it a weakness. God would call it as it is, it is willfulness. See, there's a difference between what God, what man thinks of sin and what God thinks of sin. Man will minimize it. And I think he'll minimize it because he knows how bad it is. And if he minimizes it, it's not quite so bad. God wants us to see sin for exactly what it is. Now there are some biblical words that are translated sin in the Old Testament. One word is pesha, which is simply translated as transgression or rebellion. Now I like rebellion because what does that sound like? It sounds like a revolution. It sounds like I'm resisting what you said. I'm going to do it my way, not your way. And then there's another word, avon, that which is twisted or crooked. Taking things that may be truthful and twisting them around to suit your own benefit. Crooked paths that somebody is following, knowing that it's not the straight and the narrow way that one is to follow, as Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 7. Those are just the two words in the Old Testament. The New Testament we're more familiar with probably because of our study in the New Testament is less on the Old. And one word that we are very familiar with is the Greek word harmatia, which literally means to miss the mark. It would be used of a target. And I've done target shooting with a bow and arrow, with rifle, shotgun. And when you miss, you miss. Shooting clay pigeons, you can definitely tell when you're on target. Because there will be a poof of dust as the shot hits that clay. There may be a fragmentation of one as it breaks apart. And if you miss, it just keeps right on sailing. And you know you miss. Now in archery or in pistol shooting or rifle shooting, your goal is to hit the small bullseye. Now you can go high, you can go low, you can go left, you can go right. And I have missed the target. Maybe it was out of sight, maybe my aim was off, whatever it was. It was, but I missed the mark. And God has set his mark for us to attain to. What he wants of us. 
And we miss that. Another word in the Greek, herbesis, is transgressing or overpassing a line. There's a line in the sand, we said, over the conflict in Syria. You don't dare use chemical weapons, said one president. And nothing happened when they did. Another president that followed him said, you don't use chemical weapons. There's a line in the sand. It's alleged that they did, and action was taken. You don't transgress. You don't cross the line. God has given us a line just so for our benefit. The guardrails on a highway around a curve or bridge are there to warn you just in case you get too close to the edge. It's not to give you the ability to drive how close can you get to them. It's basically to warn you don't get that close. Because there's danger on the other side. And if you over... Step that line, something's going to fall. I'm amazed at some of the videos that you can watch on the internet. Saw one the other day about it with a truck. It was someplace in another country. It wasn't the United States because we never allow a bridge to be built like this. It didn't have any guardrails on it. It didn't have much structural strength it looked like. It looked like one that I don't know that I'd want to walk across. And yet here's this big truck going across it very slowly. And it looked like it could go off at any moment or it could just crash through the bridge itself. But the driver was skilled with that bridge and his ability. And he had done it probably several times. And he made it across. He didn't overpass that line. Another Greek word is peripatoma, which is a falling where one should have stood. Paul said to us in 1 Corinthians, Let a man take heed where he stands, lest he fall. There are times in our lives we have to stand or we will fall, and we don't want that. Antinomianism is lawlessness, is another. Anomia is literally the word for lawlessness. It is saying it doesn't matter. I'm going to do it my way. That's what sin is. Now, there are various types of sin. One can violate their conscience, whatever is not of faith, to him that is of sin, Paul said in Romans chapter 14. Failing to include God in one's plans. Hey, I'm going to go do this and this, go off on this journey and to this city, and I'm going to do commerce, I'll make money. You better take God into account of your plans, or you might not. We know that breaking God's law is sin. First John chapter one and verse chapter five, verse one, verse seventeen. There is a sin that leads unto death, and there's a sin that does not lead unto death. Now all sin separates man from God. There is that unrepentant sin that will lead a man to death and there's nothing you can do about it because unless they're willing to change, they are going to die. Well, maybe that's just enough of a review of what I'm talking about when I talk about sin. But we, what we really need to do is see not just the definition of it, we need to see it from God's view. So that we'll understand what it is. And in Exodus chapter 11... 
and verse 44. It says, For I, the Lord, am your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, and thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is holy. Paul would say of God in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16 as he's closing out this first letter to Timothy. And he says in verse 15 that he'll bring, uh, that he is blessed, the only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable life, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Unapproachable life. This is we know and we understand that we can't have fellowship with sin. You see, in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3, God had already told Adam and Eve, given them all that they wanted. He said, there's just one thing. I don't want you to go out in the middle of that garden and that tree that looks so good out there. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to touch it. don't want you to eat from it. And in chapter 3, we know the story because we talked about it several times. Satan was there one day. Adam and Eve were there. And he misled them. And why he spoke to Eve first and not Adam, I don't know. But she was right there with him. And he could have just as easily spoke to Adam. But there was something that he thought that he could do and he showed it to her. He asked her a question and got her curiosity up. Well, we have that old parable, that old phrase in our vernacular that talks about curiosity killed the cat. Curiosity is good sometimes. It should pursue our pursuit of, it should help aid us in our pursuit of knowledge. It shouldn't cause us to to detract, to to take us away from our walk of following God. But it did with Eve. Has God said you can't eat anything from this garden? Oh no, he said we can have anything we want except from this tree over here. Or we'll die. Oh no, you won't die. God knows you'll be as wise as he is. Why does God want to keep all the wisdom to himself? See, there's one thing about having knowledge. But if you don't have the understanding to go with it, you can be in a lot of trouble. Knowledge is just knowing stuff. Understanding gives you the wisdom to handle the knowledge in which you have. Men didn't have that ability. God told them, I don't want you to look at it. I don't want you to touch it. I don't want you to eat it. And Satan said, it'll be okay. After all, it looks really good. I'm sure it tastes good. And it'll make you wise. Everything that they would have wanted. And what happened when they did that, they knew. They knew they sinned. They knew they violated what God said, and it wasn't simply a matter of... Well, they didn't understand all the consequences. What does this mean? But they knew that something was amiss. And so they made fig leaves and covered themselves because of their nakedness. But God didn't leave them without hope. After he cast them out, as he was casting them out of the garden, God made them a covering out of animal skins. God was going to take care of them. And I think that covering of animal skins is just merely 
something that we look forward to is being clothed by the blood of Christ. By the clothing that Christ gives us, having our sins washed away. Excuse me, I misstated that. Isaiah said in chapter 59, something we looked at last week just briefly, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear dull, so dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You see, sin separates. It causes Adam and Eve to leave the garden. It causes us not to have fellowship with God. And we struggle, therefore, with, oh my, what am I going to do about it? But you know what? Man calls it a mistake. God calls it madness. It's a trifle. It's a tragedy. It's my liberty. No, it's lawlessness. It's weakness. No, it's willfulness. You see, sin is a choice. We have to choose the path that we're going to follow. You see, and what happens the way we find that path and get on that path is we have to see God in His holiness, in His glory. And I would be petrified if I was Isaiah. I wonder what it would be like to see God as Isaiah did in his vision in chapter 6. I mean, the text gives us a little bit about it, but I just don't know that I can wrap my head around it. If It's just almost too finite when Isaiah writes, in the, in the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah 6, if you're following along in your Bible. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. I can almost imagine that. Lofty and exalted. Train of his robe filling the temple. You know, it was several years ago, oh, just earlier this summer, in fact, that Prince Harry married Meghan Markle at race ceremony, you know, British royalty, and everybody in the United States is enamored with that. But didn't we fight a war with those guys several years ago? Why do we care what goes on over Anyway, that's political, I'm sorry. But it's, why are we so concerned about that? But it does give us the only hint of something that maybe is all that glory and pomp and ceremony, and it's like, wow. I didn't watch it, but you know, you hear the news reports about it. And everybody says it was awesome. I saw the Lord sitting on the, on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling up the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Yeah, I've seen part of this earth and it is magnificent. Just step outside at night on a clear night and you see the stars and the heavens. What is man? that thou art mindful of him. It really makes you step back and wonder. But then Isaiah says, the foundations of the thresholds tremble at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And Isaiah knew that he was in a place that he really shouldn't be. Because he saw himself. He sees the glory of God who dwells in unapproachable in light. 
And he's going, what am I doing here? God, why are you showing me this? Because I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is too much, Lord. I am ruined. I'm a dead man. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity has been taken away and your sin is forgiven. How did Isaiah feel then? Relieved? Yeah, probably so. Confident in God? That he was one of God's people? I imagine there were a lot of emotions going through his mind. But when God said, who will go for us? Of course, Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And we'll talk more about that next week. As we talk about wrestling with our mission. And as we look at Christ and his single-minded approach to his mission when he came to this earth. But what I want to talk about is Isaiah's acceptance of his cleansing. And where man is sometimes with his forgiveness. My forgiveness. Because I have to wrestle with it. Because you have to wrestle with it in part because I don't see sin as God sees it. And if I don't see sin as God sees it, then I minimize it. It's not really that bad. Or I'll be flippant like Flip Wilson was. Play on words. Uh, I know. Uh, Many years ago. The devil made me do it. No, it was a choice. I chose to do it. The devil didn't make me do it. He may have put the bait out there. He may have put a temptation out there. But God said there's been no temptation given to you that you can't overcome. Paraphrase of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 or chapter 10. God will give you a way of escape. Don't just be looking at that temptation. Look for the window. Look for the door. Look for the back door, the side door. Look for that way of escape. Don't focus on that temptation. But you see, eh, it's not that bad. We rationalize. Again, we call it liberty and God says it's lawlessness. We wrestle with our salvation in part because we don't see our sin as God sees it. And then sometimes we wrestle with it because my sin is so bad God could not forgive me. There's just no way that God could forgive me. To which Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, or verse 15, we'll pick it up there at the paragraph, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy. So that in me as foremost, Jesus Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. You see, Paul says, I am so bad. I am the chief, the foremost, I'm the first one in line. How bad were you, Paul? Galatians chapter 1. Paul is defending himself, his ministry that he has. But he didn't receive the word from any man. No man told him these things. 
And he says in verse 13, Galatians 1 and verse 13, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. You think you're bad? Now, have you ever dealt with somebody in trying to persuade them about the gospel of Christ, and they said, no, I'm just too bad. God could not save me. He couldn't love me enough. I've done this, I've done that, a whole host of things. Just look to Paul. I tried to eradicate the body of Christ. I tried to destroy it. This thing that was of God, I was so zealous against it, I was putting people in prison. They were being executed. And I loved it. You know, sometimes we feel that way, that my sin is so bad. But we have to see sin as God sees it, but we have to see sin in its proper place. That if God could save Paul, he could save me. Now, I know and you know that sin is bad. In Romans chapter, whoops, find it here. Romans chapter 3, it does tell us in verse 9. Or verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, they have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. There was sin before the law. We know that. Adam and Eve sinned. They violated what God said. But not in the same way. And that's something I'm wrestling with as I've been reading Romans this week right along with you. Sin was imputed to us with the law. When we knew about it and had some understanding of what it meant to walk away from God. Choose lawlessness over God's righteousness. But Paul would go on to say, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you're not unusual. You're just like everybody else. I'm like everybody else. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified, he continues on, as a gift by his grace to the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. In his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Yes, sin is lawlessness. God calls it lawlessness. It's not liberty. But God wants us all to know that it is not because of our own goodness or our own abilities, or anything else that we can be justified. 
because we condemn ourselves. We're still in sin. I had a friend that I tried to study with years ago before preaching school. He just wouldn't even entertain obedience to the gospel because he wasn't good enough. And I said, the problem is you'll never be good enough. And the problem is that we're bad enough that we need this that God offers us. Because he's saying, just believe and trust in me. And then we say, it can't be that simple. I've got to do something. It's not only do I not deserve it then, it's because I just don't feel comfortable in accepting it. Because I've got to do something. Because I caused the death of Christ. Paul wasn't that way. He knew that as a blasphemer, the law said you're guilty of death. You should die. And he was trying to destroy the church of God, as we said in the adult class this morning. He just said, I fall on your grace. Now, he didn't say that literally, but that's how he lived. Because he said, yes. When Ananias told him, was recounting his story in Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Ananias told him, he said, why do you wait? Get up, get yourself baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Is it really that simple? Yeah. It's the baptism, is the appeal, Peter said, of a good conscience, saying, God, I want to be with you. I want to be added to your family. I know I'm not good enough. I know I can't do enough. And so I just fall on your grace, on your mercy. I just believe so that you'll save me. And I think that's a little bit of what Isaiah did. When he said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. What am I going to do? And you know what? Isaiah didn't do anything. It was God who sent the seraphim down there with the coal and the tongs and touched his lips. And your sins have been dealt with. And then Isaiah responded. He just heard the voice. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. And that's what wrestling with our forgiveness does. Because when we realize that we're forgiven, we're going to be about our Father's business. We'll be about the mission that He has given to us. And nothing will stop us. You're going to have to wait for next week for that lesson. Because that's what it's going to be about. Because when we wrestle with sin, we'll see it as God does. When we wrestle with sin, we'll see our need of forgiveness. And when we wrestle with sin, we'll accept the forgiveness that's out there for us. And we'll say, here am I, send me. I don't know where you are today. And I know this lesson in many ways has been just, yeah, maybe like it's been every time. But I hope it caused you to think a little bit about it and put it in perspective so that we will accept the salvation that's ours. The salvation that is offered to you. Not because you're good enough, but because you're so bad you can't get it any other way. That God wants you. He wants you to be part of His family. And if you're not part of His family, all things are ready for you to be part of His family. And if you've strayed and gone off into that faraway place... The Father's there waiting and longing, watching for you to come home. 
And if you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, won't you please come together while we stand and sing this hymn for your encouragement? You have to take time.